be here and thanks for the welcome. Um, I want to talk about this uh, very well-known story, uh, the story of Jesus feeding a crowd of 5,000 men besides women and children. So I want to start by talking a little bit about bread. Um, a few weeks ago on a Saturday morning, I found myself standing in a queue to buy bread. It was outside a little shop in Moira. Some of you will know it. I think it's called Groom, which is a French word. Uh, although I lived in French-speaking Switzerland for 17 years, I'd never heard this word. It's apparently something to do with a particular part of an ear of, of corn. Um, so some of you will know it. Uh, it does very fine, high-quality bread uh, at very fine, high prices as well. Um, and uh, if you shop around a little bit in some of the popular supermarkets, you probably can find bread that's not too, not too much worse, um, but uh, you pay a lot less for it. But I got to thinking a little bit about this idea about standing queuing for bread, and I realized that there are probably two sets of circumstances where people stand queuing for bread. The first is on a Saturday morning, although it's also available on a Thursday and a Friday, queues I don't think are quite so big, but a Saturday morning outside Moira or Hillsborough or other places that have these kind of artisan bakeries. And it's basically people who have no difficulty paying large amounts of money for bread and they stand in a queue because the bread is so good and uh, they want to make sure they get it. The other situation where people queue in order to get bread is actually the opposite. It's when there just isn't enough. And people are queuing because there's a shortage. And I think it's appropriate for us, especially as we look around and we see there's a great basket of of fruit here. There's uh, other uh, just examples of of harvest that, that, that we're surrounded with. It's good for those of us who have the luxury of being able to basically get whatever bread we want to remember that there are millions of people, literally millions of people, for whom an adequate food supply is not guaranteed. Now, in many parts of the world, bread is just a core part of what people eat. One of the most common foods. If it's not bread, it's probably rice or something very, very similar. But also in the ministry of Jesus, bread is very significant. Uh, we have these, this feeding miracle that we're going to talk about uh, just in a moment. There's another feeding miracle that comes just a little later in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000, not 5,000. But you'll also remember that in his teaching and in other instances he talks about bread. So that when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray, give us each day, our, give us this day our daily bread. Or you may remember that towards the end of his life, on the occasion of his final supper, the Passover supper with his disciples, he took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and told them to eat it. He was pointing forward to his death. And of course, that's something that ever since Christians have taken bread and eaten it, not to look forward to his death, but to look back at the sacrifice that he's made for us. And here he is giving bread to a crowd of people. Now you may know that this is uh, one miracle that is recorded by all four of the gospel writers. Uh, Apart from the resurrection, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the gospels. 
And you'll find that as you look at the different accounts of it, you'll find that there are some things they all agree on. Uh, so they all agree that um, Jesus fed the, this large crowd uh, with five loaves and two fish. They all agreed that everyone had enough to eat, that there was plenty left over. In fact, 12 baskets left over. But they also have little variations. They bring their own little uh, slant to the telling of the story. So there are variations in terms of the setting of the story. Uh, Mark adds the little detail that grass was green. And of course, for us who live in Ireland, we would say, well, what other color would grass be? In the Middle East, it obviously uh, isn't green all the time. It's probably the emphasis here is given just to remind us that it's happening at springtime. And John also gives a little detail. He gives us the detail that the, 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 the loaves and fish originated with a young boy who was in the crowd and the detail that the loaves were barley loaves. So it's an amazing story, Jesus taking five loaves and a couple of fish and feeding this huge crowd of people. What does it teach us about Jesus? Well, I want to suggest three things. And the first one is that it's a story about Jesus' compassion. It's a story about Jesus' compassion. Now, um, if you pay attention to what uh, it happens immediately before, the way Matthew describes the, the, the setup for this miracle, um, he describes it like this in verses 13 and 14. He says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, and when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, Jesus, uh, Mark, rather, in his telling of the story, notes that Jesus had compassion on this crowd that's followed him, and he began teaching. So he's teaching and he's healing. But both of them highlight Jesus' compassion. Now, I want us to think about that just a little bit, this compassion of Jesus. And again, there's a little detail at the beginning of Matthew's account where he says, when Jesus had heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat to a solitary place. And you read that and you think, well, what had happened? What had Jesus heard that made him want to retreat to this solitary place? And probably the most obvious answer comes from the few verses immediately before it. And those few verses are a description of the death of John the Baptist. Uh, very gory details are given to us where it's Herod's birthday. Um, and Herod makes a rather rash promise uh, to uh, his uh, uh, to, to this, this uh, young woman, the daughter of Herodias, and uh, uh, he he uh, makes this rash promise, and he ends up chopping the head of John the Baptist off, and it's served up on a platter. Uh, not very wholesome, especially when you haven't had your lunch on a Sunday. So it could be that what Matthew's emphasising is that Jesus has heard this detail about the death of John the Baptist, who was his cousin. And he decides, I need some time away to take the disciples away to this solitary place. It's also possible, and those of you who have a Bible in front of you or have it on your phone or whatever, if you look all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, you see there that uh, the references to Herod, who's heard reports about Jesus, who said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. In other words, Herod is noticing Jesus. And Jesus decides, this is not the time for confrontation, and so he takes himself off to a quiet place. Uh, and it could be one or other of, of those things. And I should also add that Mark and Luke bring another element to it. 
when they tell us that the disciples have just returned from mission and Jesus has gone with them to this place called Bethsaida. Now all of that, rather than, I hope it doesn't confuse you too much, but all of that is to say that there's a lot going on in the background. Herod has noticed that Jesus is, is, is doing these miracles and he's got this, this, this ministry that's going on. And Herod is starting to pay attention to this. And he's been hostile towards John the Baptist. Herod, John the Baptist has been brutally executed. Jesus' disciples have just been on a mission and they've come back. For all of those reasons, they've taken this time away. And yet here is Jesus, in spite of everything that has gone on in the background, and he sees this crowd of people who followed him and he has compassion on them. Compassion so that he teaches them. Compassion so that he heals those among them who are ill. And eventually, when they're hungry, he's not going to send them home hungry. He's going to feed them. The compassion of Jesus. You read about it in various places in the Gospels. So in chapter 9, Matthew says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you'll see the same word, compassion. You'll see it used in chapter 15 before Jesus feeds the 4,000. You'll see it again in chapter 20, where there are two blind men and Jesus is moved with compassion and heals them. And the word that Matthew uses, it's used used in, in the Greek New Testament, that's used for compassion is a fascinating word. Now, we tend to think about emotion as something to do with our heart. That's that's how we talk about it. Um, Heartbreak uh, is is painful emotion. Uh, We express emotion with our hearts. In Jesus' day, you expressed emotion with your entrails. Again, this is sorry about this. This is immediately before lunchtime. But the word that's used for compassion is a word that is connected with basically your entrails, your kidneys and your liver, your intestines, which underlines the point that compassion is not just something that is, it's not just Jesus doing his job, well, I feel sorry for these people because I'm paid to feel sorry for them. This is something that is coming from the very depths of Jesus' being. And one writer has said that there's no single English word that does justice to this this word that's used in the New Testament. He says, compassion, pity, sympathy, fellow feeling, all all convey part of it. And perhaps the best we can do is to say, his heart went out. Now just let that sit with you for a moment. His heart went out to these people. Imagine that. The heart of the Lord goes out to these people. He's not just going about his job and healing them because it's his job to do it or teaching them because it's his job to do it. His heart goes out to these people in their need. That's why he ministers to them. And isn't it a wonderful thing to think that the Lord is compassionate and that his heart still goes out to his people. Now, you and I may not always understand what's going on in our lives. We, we, we don't always have the big picture of what's going on in our lives. But here's something for us to lean on. 
It is this promise that the Lord is compassionate. His heart goes out to us. This is a story of Jesus' compassion. Second thing I want you to notice is that it's a story of Jesus' power. Uh, Five loaves, two fish. It's a very small amount of food when you're faced with a crowd of thousands. It would be a very small amount of food even if you were faced with a crowd of hundreds. Five loaves and two fish. Now, some of you probably grew up uh, with the King James Version of the Bible, the authorized version. And uh, you realize uh, if that's what you grew up with, and maybe some of you still still read it, uh, and even if you don't still read it, it's probably made a big impression on you. And you maybe remember that the way it talks about it is five loaves and two fishes. But yet our modern translations, we say five loaves and two fish. So we think about it, should it be fish or should it be fishes? Now I'm going to give you a little bit of information and really the only people in this part of Northern Ireland who know this are the people who were in Darlingstown this morning and a few people who are nerdy enough to spend time on Twitter. Um, uh, but apparently, I discovered this, that the, the normal plural of fish is fish. So one fish, two fish, three fish, four fish. Unless you're talking about more than one species. So a salmon and a cod or whatever it might be would be fishes uh, with the extra little bit added on to it. So if it's more than one species, it's fishes. If it's all the same species, it's just fish. Now make sure you get that right. Um, uh, now now you've, you've, got that, you've got that piece of information. However, I need to say that no matter whether you call it fish or fishes, the miracle is still the same. It doesn't affect the reality of the miracle. Now, some of you have maybe heard people from time to time, and sadly, there are people who've written books and preached sermons and so on who try to say, well, do you know, this is, it's not really as simple as this. And they try to explain the way about miracles. And uh, sadly, the Christian church has gone through a phase uh, at various times where people are a little bit allergic to the idea of miracles, and they try to find other explanations. But I don't think there's any reason for us to see this as anything else than a demonstration of the power of Jesus over nature, over the created world. He, he does this, he demonstrates this in several of his miracles. The very first miracle that he does, that's recorded at least for us, is the miracle where he turns water into wine. He also is involved in a miraculous catch of fish on two occasions. He calms a storm, he walks on water, he finds a coin in the mouth of a fish. You know, when it's January the 31st isn't so far away, some of us might be praying that we would be able to find our tax payments in the mouth of a fish. And he causes a fig tree to wither. His power over nature, and that's not to mention his power over disease and his power over demons and his authority over people's lives. But he demonstrates his power over nature. And that's what he's doing here. And presumably what happens is that Jesus takes the loaves that have been brought to him, the loaves and fish, and he gives them to the disciples to, to distribute. That's what it says, isn't it? He, he broke them. And presumably the miracle comes as he breaks them. And you can imagine if you're one of the disciples and you come along to Jesus, he's, he's, he's asking you to distribute this to the crowd. You come along to Jesus and he breaks, some, he breaks a loaf and he gives you a piece and you take it away. 
and then you come back and lo and behold there's more and you come back and lo and behold there's there's still more <clears throat> and it's quite remarkable and you'd love to have been there and you'd love to have seen the fa- the expressions on the faces of the disciples as they see this and think how on earth is this happening and in the end everybody had had enough to eat and there was actually so much that they were able to fill 12 baskets with the leftovers it's jesus power over nature But I also think that he demonstrates his power over something else in this story. It is his power over human limitations. Now, here's what he says. Here's what happens in verse 15. This is the setting. As evening approached, so they've been there. The crowds have followed Jesus. He has taught them. He's been healing those who are ill. And as evening approaches, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Do you know, this is a remote place. There are not a lot of bakeries around here. Certainly not like the bakeries in Moira that uh, would charge you that amount of money. There's not a lot of bakeries here, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So in other words, if we keep them here too long, by the time they get to the villages, all the little bakeries will be closed, there'll be no bread, and they're going to have to go to bed hungry tonight. And Jesus says to them, very surprisingly, he said, well, they don't actually need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. And you can imagine that maybe they look, they, they look at each other and, and they think to themselves, did we actually hear him properly? You give them something to eat. And they say, well, we only have, we've only got five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, we also know that, they, that, that the conversation obviously also included the idea that, you know, if, if there were bakeries anywhere near here, well, where would we find the money to buy enough bread to feed this crowd? We've only got five loaves and we've got two fish. And Jesus simply says to them in verse 18, just bring them to me. He takes this very meager supply. One one loaf could probably have fed three people, but not a hundred, certainly not a thousand. And Jesus takes it. He looks up to heaven. He says a prayer of blessing. And he breaks the bread and he begins to distribute it to the disciples who go on and distribute it to the people and it goes on until everybody has had more than enough to eat. Five loaves and two fish. That was the best the disciples could do. That was all they had. And there was no way, it was humanly impossible to take that and feed that crowd. And yet once those loaves and fish are in the hands of the Lord Jesus. They are more than enough to feed everybody and no one goes home hungry. And I think that that's exactly the way God likes to work. He loves to display his power through human weakness. And he loves to display his sufficiency through human limitations. You see it in several places across Scripture. You see it, for example, way back in the book of Judges in the story of Gideon. Gideon was this unlikely hero, very nervous kind of a guy, and, and this message comes to him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you can imagine him almost having to look around and see who the mighty warrior was in the picture. And eventually he's going to be the person who will lead an army to fight the Midianites who are oppressing the Israelites. And he starts out with 32,000 soldiers. 
And God says, well, just hang on a minute, Gideon. 32,000 soldiers, that's just far too many. Because if you go out with 32,000 soldiers and you defeat the Midianites, you're going to say, well, of course we defeated the Midianites because we have 32,000 soldiers. So God begins to remove people from that right the way down until it's 300. Human inadequacy. How is that ever going to win a battle? And yet that's exactly what happens. It was enough. Everybody else could go home. God's power through human weakness. God's sufficiency through human inadequacy. Or if you think of the day of Pentecost and you've got this ragtag bunch of tax collectors and fishermen and they stand up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and they preach and they launch the church And 2,000 years later, we are still here. There are millions of us around the face of the earth. God taking human inadequacy, demonstrating his power. Or you think about Paul, the apostle, and he's writing about this thorn in the flesh, this weakness that he's got. And he says, you know, I prayed about it. I asked again and again that the Lord would take it away. And he said, no, no, Paul, I'm not going to do that. Because my strength is made perfect in weakness and my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, do you know what? I will actually boast in my weakness because when I am weak, then I am strong. Five loaves, two fish, that's all we've got. What are they among so many? Jesus says, bring them to me. And in his hands, they are more than enough. Do you know 40 years ago, it's reckoned that there were about 500 known Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. If you're younger, you think 40 years is a very long time. Uh, Pauline and I just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary a couple of days ago. So 40 years is really not that long. She hasn't changed at all. It just gets better. But 40 years ago, 500 known Christians from a Muslim background in Iran 20 years ago, it was between 5,000 and 10,000. So that's multiplied by 10 or multiplied by 20. Today, it's estimated to be between 800,000 and 1 million. You see, you could go back 40 years and you could say, 500? What are these among so many? Human inadequacy. And Jesus says, bring them to me. And in his hands, they're multiplied. Similarly, in Algeria, I was speaking to someone just a few months ago over dinner, and he was talking to me about Algeria. And I discovered that in Algeria, over the past 15 years, the number of Christians has gone from 10,000 to something around half a million, 500,000. What are these among so many? And Jesus says, bring them to me. This is the power of Jesus in the face of situations of human insufficiency and human inadequacy. And all the disciples had to do was to obey him. Just do what he's asked you to do, even if you've got no idea how it could possibly make any difference. Just obey him. And their obedience allowed him to see the power of Jesus at work. It's a story of his compassion. His heart goes out 
It's a story of his power over nature and over human inadequacy. And it's a story of his provision. You know, remember we said at the beginning, he teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Father, we're asking you to provide for us. That would have meant so much more to the disciples and to people living at the time of Jesus in, in, in that situation. It's too easy for us, isn't it, to just go on to our chosen uh, website of uh, the supermarket of our choice and we click and a little van turns up outside our door and delivers everything that we need. It's still God who allows us to be in a place where we can do that. Give us this day our daily bread. We're asking God to provide for us. And there are pictures through Scripture of God as a providing God. Psalm 132, God promises that he will satisfy the poor of Zion with food. And in Isaiah 25, looking way ahead into the future, there's a picture of a, of a great banquet. It's described as a feast of rich food for all peoples. And it's a time when death will be swallowed up and tears will be wiped away. Who would not want a time like that? Rich food for everyone from all nations when death is swallowed up and tears are wiped away. This is the provision of, of God. And there are times when we get glimpses here and there uh, of, of God's provision, and miraculous provision. If you, if you wanted to dig into some of this, you could go to 2 Kings chapter 4, which is telling us a story about Elisha, the prophet. And in his ministry, there's a, there's a miracle of multiplying food to feed a crowd, not as big a crowd as this, but multiplying food to feed a crowd. Or if you go even further back, <clears throat> and this is something which you'll, you'll be familiar with because you've just finished doing a sermon series on, on the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 16, people are hungry, got nothing to eat. It's kind of constant theme uh, of, of the people uh, after they come out of Egypt. What, where are we going to get anything to eat? And then when they get stuff to eat, they don't like it. And, and, and they wish they could get the food from Egypt and all the rest of it. But in Exodus chapter 16, the Lord gives them bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. Now, we've read this morning from Matthew's account of the feeding of the 5,000. But if we were to go over to John in, in, in his account, in John chapter 6, we would find John telling us the story of the miracle. And then a little later on, he would tell us something about what Jesus said as a follow-up. And here's what Jesus said as a follow-up. It is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven. People would be scratching their heads and saying, Maybe those who saw echoes of this in the miracle, scratching their heads, said, well, in our Bible, it was Moses. He said, no, no, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he says this, and their minds are beginning to get probably expanded and bent out of shape as he talks like this. He says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I think, well, the manna, yeah, it gave life to, the, the, to our ancestors. This is now bread that's going to give life to the world. What are you talking about? And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. The bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so we see that Jesus in this miracle... He's the one who sustains physical life by giving physical bread. 
But it's meant to point us to the fact that he is the one who gives spiritual life by giving himself. And you think, when you look at those actions that are are described here of taking the bread, of saying a prayer of blessing, of breaking, of giving to his disciples, you think, well, he does that again, doesn't he? At the Last Supper. Takes it, blesses, breaks it, and gives it. This is my body, which is given for you. He's the bread of life. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Life and nourishment. He gives us this wonderful invitation. Whoever believes in him, he says, will never be hungry. Some of you know about Jesus. You've been challenged time and again to believe. And yet you've never taken the step. And maybe this morning as we think, or this afternoon as it is now, as we think about Jesus, who's given not just bread to feed a hungry crowd, but who's given himself to provide spiritual life for those who trust in him. There's a fresh invitation to believe in him, to draw life from him and nourishment from him. It's a story about his compassion, about his power, and about his provision. And just as we finish, let me just wind the narrative forward a little bit. Because you'd think that the disciples who've seen all this, had a front row seat in this miracle, well, you'd think they would never again worry about going hungry. Never again worry about bread. And especially because in chapter 15... There's a a virtual repeat, smaller crowd, different number of uh, bread, different number of uh, of loaves, different number of fish. And yet we we discover that the penny's very slow to drop with these guys. Because in chapter 16, Jesus says to them, guys, I'm sure he didn't use the word guys, but he says to them, would you be, be, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees? The yeast of the Pharisees. And all they hear in that is the word yeast. Why is he talking about yeast? Well, yeast is what you put in bread, isn't it? Oh, no. We forgot to bring bread. And they start to talk about the fact they'd forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus says to them, You of little faith, why are you talking about bread? And it's as though he's saying to them, have you not really learned anything? Have you not really been paying attention? You're like, you're like Mr. Pumpkinhead sitting over here. Those of you at the back don't know what I'm talking about, but there's a, there's a pumpkin head. No, he's in front of you. There's a pumpkin head with a cap here uh, and a suit and a big flower. Um, no, he's beside you. He's, he's in front of you and he's beside you. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> but they were like Mr. Pumpkinhead. You know, they weren't paying attention. Why would they worry about bread when they'd seen what Jesus is able to do? And you and I think, yeah, when they really, they really, they really were like pumpkin heads. I mean, goodness gracious, they, they're just not paying attention. Why, why were they slow, so slow to get the point? And then we think, do we do the same thing? 
How often have we experienced the Lord's compassion? Or his power? Or his provision? And yet when some new challenge confronts us, we fall into a panic. We don't, we don't add it up. We don't say, well, he looked after me here. He looked after me there. He's provided for me. He's always demonstrated his faithfulness. I can trust him even if I can't understand what's happening at the moment. How many times has he provided for you? What have you learned about his compassion? What have you learned about his power? Some of you have been followers of Jesus for a long time. And you can look back on probably so many stories of his faithfulness in the big things, in the little things. It's not that we expect him just to be like a genie that we rub the lamp and he appears and says, your wish is my command. That, that's, that's not the point. But as we look at his hand and his faithfulness, he wants us to learn to trust in him. And maybe we need to remind ourselves of a great hymn. And I said to the folks this morning in Dollingstown, if I was Simon at this point, I would say, I've got a terrible singing voice, but I'm going to sing this anyway. And he would sing it and we would all join in. I'm not even going to be as brave as Simon. He's he's got a reasonable singing voice. I think he's fine. Um, But I'm not going to be as brave as Simon. I'm just going to read it. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God bless you.